You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL podcast. I'm Pim Fox along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. I want to bring in uh, my colleague, Brooke Sutherland, a Bloomberg Gadfly columnist who wrote a piece that was really terrific uh, yesterday about uh, President-elect Donald Trump's celebration of a decision that he says uh, he reached with carrier uh, to keep with carriers heating and air conditioning unit to save about 1,000 Indiana jobs. Brooke, thank you so much for being with us. So can you just talk first a little bit about what this agreement was and what this really does uh, with respect to saving jobs in the U.S.? Sure. You know, I think we're still waiting for all of the details, but uh, United Technologies announced a decision earlier this year to shut down two Indiana plants, actually, and move the jobs to Mexico. So the agreement that Trump is talking about has to do with the facility in Indianapolis, um, and they are planning on saving about a 1,000 jobs there. We don't know yet what's going to happen to the other Indiana factory, which is in Huntington. Uh, so, you know, at best, this is sort of a stopgap half measure that may- maybe saves some jobs, but not all of them. And it's just not really clear if it does much more beyond that. Um, so just real quick, what what exactly, what kinds of jobs are we talking about that uh, United Technology was going to move uh, to Mexico? And, you know, how long will they actually stay here? Why were they thinking of moving to Mexico? Sure. You know, so these are manufacturing jobs that typically play, pay pretty well. I mean, you're talking about about $25 an hour, which is a lot more than somebody can make working in the service industry. But you can have those same jobs done in Mexico for a lot less. And so that's part of the appeal. The other part is that, you know, there have been significant regulations in the air conditioning and HVAC industry in terms of making the products more efficient, living up to sort of environmental standards, and those have a cost. And so to be competitive, what United Technologies has said is they need to lower labor costs. And a lot of its competitors have already made these moves to Mexico. And so that's really where it's coming from, not, you know, we don't want to support America. Is it also the case that while these jobs may be saved, other factory jobs in Indiana, in the geographical location where this United Technologies carrier plant is located, those layoffs and those moves to Mexico, they're continuing? 
Exactly. I mean, it's not even that all of the United Technologies jobs are going to be saved. They're only saving some of them. Right. So, but there are, you know, other manufacturers who have had to make these same decisions. And I don't think that manufacturers like making these decisions, but a lot of times it's just sort of the reality of the economic situation they find themselves in. And to your point, Rexnerd, which is another industrial manufacturer, is also in Indiana, not too far from where the United Technologies plant is actually. And they are looking at shutting down that facility and moving those jobs to Mexico. And we haven't really heard as much about Rexnerd. And I have to wonder if that's because there's no viral video about the Rexnerd layoffs the way that there was with Carrier. It hasn't gotten as much public attention. It hasn't drawn as much pushback. It hasn't really been talked about about by President Trump-elect. Um, so I just sort of wonder if we're going to see anything there, if he's just sort of picking and choosing the ones that might bring good publicity. I love the lead. Uh, Donald Trump can't micromanage his way to a man- manufacturing revival in America. Uh, perhaps he can't micromanage his way uh, to a manufacturing revival. But is there something on a policy level that he could do uh, to keep manufacturing jobs in the U.S.? Or are these jobs just going away because of automation? Well, I think that's sort of a tough question. You know, he's talked about leveling hefty tariffs at these companies that manufacture products in Mexico and then bring them back to the U.S. He's talked about doing this on an individual basis, which I think would be very hard to implement without looking like you're picking and choosing who wins in this country and, you know, which businesses do well. And if they don't do exactly what you tell them to do, you're going to punish them. That's a very dangerous precedent to set. I don't know if you want to have a mass tariff because that could spark trade war. So I don't really know what you do on a national scale to stop this from happening. And even if you put those types of policies in place, you're not going to change sort of the broader trends that are driving this momentum. A lot of it is technology. You know, these jobs are being replaced by machines because they don't need people to do them. Or there's excess manufacturing capacity because these companies have merged. Or their products just aren't in demand anymore. If you're Caterpillar or Joy Global, people just aren't buying mining equipment right now because commodity prices have eroded so much. I just want to note that uh, another news story, you mentioned technology, but something called the Internet Archive. They preserve the digital records of billions of web pages, indeed even cached pages of websites that no longer exist. They are moving their backup data to Canada because they fear potential changes in legislation due to a, a Trump administration could maybe put the archives at, at so all different, a lot of moving pieces. There is. And, you know, I think that's what makes it hard to tackle these sort of job decisions on a national level. And that's one of the points I was trying to make is that typically this is a conversation that happens on the state level where you have state governors or legislators talking to companies about specific facilities within their state and what they can do to preserve jobs. But it's hard to translate that on a national level. Bring in Eric Marshall, portfolio manager with Hodges Funds, uh, to talk a little bit about what to look for in small cap stocks. I mean, we've just seen an amazing run in the Russell 2000 and other uh, small small cap indexes. Uh, The Russell 2000 gaining almost 11% since the U.S. election. Thank you for being with us, Eric. Do you think that this can continue? We think that there's a good case that we'll see the bull market and small caps continue. And there's a couple things that make us encouraged in this space. You know, it's been a very bifurcated market within small caps this year, where a lot of the things having to do with REITs and utilities and a lot of the defensive areas have really carried very high multiples, while a lot of 
areas within consumer discretionary, industrials have not. And, you know, as we look at the prospects for higher interest rates, lower taxes, less regulation, and a continued pickup in merger and acquisition activity, we think you could still see room to run in this bull market for small cap stocks. All right. Can you give us some specific industry groups or even names? I know, for example, we're looking at a potential infrastructure spending plan coming from President-elect Donald Trump administration. Is that going to help small cap stocks? Yeah, and that's one of the areas in the Hodges Small Cap Fund that we've really been focused on is companies that can benefit from that infrastructure spend. And it leads us to own a lot of the materials, uh, including uh, concrete and cement companies. Uh, One that we like is a relatively new IPO, uh, Fotera, And this is a company that makes large diameter concrete pipes and so forth that are used for water infrastructure, which is uh, there's a huge upgrade cycle going on. The stock trades at a very reasonable valuation, very much still underneath the radar. Uh, They went public a couple months ago and uh, not exactly a great time for small cap IPOs. But we like things like that. We're seeing opportunities in some of the steel companies and a lot of these material companies that will benefit from a multi-year spending cycle for infrastructure. Just tell us the name of the company again. People may not have heard. Uh, Fonterra. Fonterra, indeed. And uh, did you buy it at the IPO or did you wait for it to come out? Uh, we bought some of the IPO and it broke that IPO price and actually traded off and we've added to it since. Um, you have a fund, the Pure Contrarian Fund. What's your most contrarian bet? Uh, within that fund, um, our founder of our firm, Craig Hodges, manages that fund. And I would say one of the pure contrarian funds' uh, biggest moves was in some of the steel and iron ore companies, which were kind of left for dead probably a year or two ago. And we found some very deep value opportunities in several companies there that have done very well. So, you know, when U.S. Steel got down to $8 a share, uh, that fund took a large position in that stock, as well as things like Cleveland Cliffs and some of the those uh, more commodity-type companies that people had really just kind of thrown away with the bathwater. Do you think that given the rally that we've seen recently that there's still more room to run with the steel uh, and metals companies? I think that there is. When you look at overall consumption of steel in in the United States, uh, it's relatively good. The capacity utilization of a lot of domestic steel companies has been running in the 60-65% area now for the past couple years because of so much cheap imports of steel coming out of Southeast Asia and Turkey, places like this. And I think as you see some of the uh, trade... Uh, regulations tighten up a little bit. If you, you mean tariffs? I mean, because that's what's <laughs> yeah. helped the steel industry, right? I mean, they they put sanctions on imported steel, making it more yeah. expensive and or more competitive with U.S. Uh, produced products. And you've seen U.S. steel, Nucor, all move higher. Absolutely. And Pim, a lot of people don't realize we don't have enough steel capacity in our country. We need to import twenty percent of our steel just to meet our needs. The problem is we've been importing 
30% or 35% of that steel. And that's really caused pricing not to recover while demand has recovered for things like auto and infrastructure and construction. Let me just turn your attention. Hodges Small Cap Fund, right? You're up more than 13.5% so far this year. Good on you. Uh, J.C. Penney is in the portfolio. Uh, Small cap, how does that end up being – what's your definition of small cap? It seems to yeah. change no matter you know, yeah. who the portfolio manager is. Well, believe it or not, JCPenney's is down to about a $3 billion yeah. market cap. And when we bought the stock, I think it was about $2.5 billion market cap. So well within the uh, definition of the Russell 2000 market cap range. But it's really a turnaround situation where uh, we see – uh, some good underlying assets in the form of real estate and so forth. And we think that the management's new plan to kind of reinvent the business through the housewares and uh, Sephora brand, some of these new things that they're doing, and kind of cater to a younger generation as well as gain back some of those core customers, we think that there's a, a very good risk reward there. What's your concern about the rise in benchmark borrowing costs and how that could affect uh, some of these smaller companies which are going to need to borrow and might not be able to borrow at, at higher rates? Well, I, I think if you look at um, you know corporate balance sheets in general, uh, they're in really relatively good good shape right now. And I do think that you definitely need to be more uh, aware in a higher interest rate environment about the uh, you know interest burden that uh, smaller companies have with their balance sheets as the cost of capital goes up, uh, but I think you know everybody's had a, a very long period of time of low interest rates to refinance, get their balance sheets in order, and I think that the uh, in general um, you know that. A lot of the concerns there could be offset by you know a lower, lower tax corporate tax rate. Transports. I notice you got a JetBlue holding in there. I mean, uh, Warren Buffett recently going in and buying uh, shares of uh, airline companies, uh, Delta, United. You Air. know, and that that's another one. Uh, you mentioned our contrarian fund earlier. That's right. one of the big bets we made a couple years ago when no one liked airlines. We were buying airlines. And what we, what we see going on in the airline industry is not that much different than what happened in the railroad industry 10 years ago, where they had kind of come out of a, a decade's worth of consolidation, and you started to see an environment where now I think the top four airlines control about 70% of the domestic capacity. So you're getting a more rational pricing environment. People are being more careful about how they add capacity, how they manage that. And we think that uh, we're in an environment now where airlines, for the first time in about 30 years, will actually generate respectable shareholder returns. So I want to thank you there. Eric Marshall, Portfolio Manager, Hodges Funds. Two asset classes we want to focus on right now are private equity and venture capital. And joining us is Greg Stento. He is managing director at HarborVest. They're based in Boston, uh, home to Bloomberg 1200. Uh, Greg, thanks very much for being here. Much appreciated. Let me just give you a headline, though, that Brent crude is rising to the highest this year after the agreement in Vienna by OPEC to hold production levels flat. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about increases in the price of almost everything, including money 
money, and what would that do to private equity and venture capital markets? Sure, Pim. Well, uh, HarborVest is a global private equity uh, asset manager focused on providing solutions to uh, investors around the globe. Uh, seeking to access the uh, the private markets. Solutions being money, like a lot of mezzanine uh, financing? Uh, solutions being uh, ways in which investors can access the asset class, whether that be through a commingled fund, through a, um, a dedicated account, or through some type of a specialized vehicle. Uh, and so that, those are ways in which uh, investors are coming into the asset class. You know, with regards to the um, the pricing environment that you speak about, uh, you know, we're focused on long-term investing. And so uh, no question, the, the valuations over the past year have been pretty full around the board, but, you know, in, in all parts of the business. Uh, and so investors have got to work hard to find uh, those special opportunities where there's growth, where there's very strong secular long-term trends to be able to overcome the full prices that, that folks have had to pay here in the short term. But again, this is all about long-term investing. Uh, and that's what you know, brings it back to, to, to our firm is that we've been doing this for 35 years and uh, have the access to those types of opportunities where we can see long-term value and long-term uh, uh, creation of growth. You know, Greg, there's been a lot of discussion about how pensions and uh, insurance companies have moved away from hedge funds um, just because of how high the fees are. Uh, I'm wondering whether that holds in the private equity world as well. I, I saw a story in the Boston Globe last night about the Massachusetts State Pension Fund paying $1.5 billion to more than 100 private equity firms of the past five Five years, and that that sort of that's the headline. Even though the returns were uh, were, were remarkable, eighteen percent annualized from two thousand eleven to two thousand fifteen. Lisa, no question, there's a focus on fees within the private markets that are being paid. But but what we think is the the real focus needs to be on the net returns, as you just talked about. I mean, th that has been the best performing part of the Massachusetts uh, state port uh, portfolio. Um, the returns that you can earn in the private markets uh, have consistently exceeded what you can earn in the private, uh, the public equity markets or other uh, other asset classes uh, over long periods of time. Why? Can you demystify that for us? Sure. So there's a number of reasons. Um, first of all, when you operate in the private markets, you have a, you operate out of the, the, the glare of the, 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 the public investors, and you have an opportunity to really think long-term about building a business and growing a business. You know, in the venture capital space, for instance, uh, there's the creation of new business ideas, you know, something like an Uber that never existed 10 years ago, that when you have the right entrepreneur, um, the right uh, product market fit, and the right uh, risk capital, you can bring that together to create solutions to, to meet unmet needs and create very scale businesses. It's a company that's been, you know, uh, uh, Quoted in the press is being worth more than $60 billion today uh, and, and, uh, and lined up. So th there are those opportunities to de develop um, uh, solutions for unmet needs, whether they be in technology or in healthcare or other markets. Uh, and finding those right globally diversified ideas are what, we've, what we're focused on at, at HarborVest. You've got a lot of investments in Canada, I understand. Uh, well, also, it's global, right? I wonder if you could just speak a little bit about how the change in the price of energy affects the decision-making process for places like Canada, because if you've got an overall economy that is driven by commodity prices, what is that? how does that uh, sort of inform your view? Sure. So we have a specialized fund that we put in place in Canada in, in, in conjunction with the Canadian government, and I think it was very much to diversify away from what, what you're discussing. So the idea was to generate new business formation in Canada. It's focused on the venture capital market. So it's trying to find those um, Canadian um, venture capital firms and other, 
other uh, global investment firms investing in Canada that can help drive new business creation and, and new industries in Canada to, to, to somewhat diversify away from an economy that has ridden its natural resource base. How, how has fundraising been so far this year, and what do you expect it to be like next year? Well, for HarborVest, it's been a re- it's been a record year for us. We've had a phenomenal year in terms of the uh, reception that we've had from investors seeking um, commingled funds, uh, uh, specialized funds like our can- uh, Canadian fund or our uh, mezzanine income fund, or also looking at you know dedicated separate accounts that want a very specific and bespoke solution. So for us, it's been a record year. It's been it's been it's been quite good, our best in in history. Um, broadly across the industry, fundraising is up mildly over last year. Uh, it's something that we watch, you know, because the, those um, imbalances of capital in the market are uh, are, are of concern in, in any market, but also in in the private markets. Uh, importantly, the, the 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 reassuring thing has been that there hasn't been a proliferation of the number of new uh, funds and new managers coming into the business. So, while the capital is up slightly year over year, the number of market participants is relatively steady. Uh, and so that keeps the competitive dynamic and, and the competitive balance in place. And again, those are the types of things that our investors seek from us to try to make sure that we're finding those opportunities that, despite the market environment, we're going to have good good potential for long-term success. We're speaking with Greg Stento. He is Managing Director at HarborVest, a topic, private equity and, and venture capital. I believe it early in November, right? You just closed on a, on a fund. I believe this was, what, about a $4.77 billion dollar? fund. Uh, tell us a little bit about this. This is a secondaries fund. It is. That's correct. Secondaries is something that we've been doing since 1986. So we celebrated over 30 years of having been active in the market. Just to be clear, secondaries means um, people who want to sell their stake in a private equity fund can sell it to somebody else through this type of fund, correct? That's right. It's an illiquid market and it's it's done through private transactions, uh, whether it be a fund position or a position in companies. Uh, and again, we've been one of the pioneers in that space, having done it now for more than 30 years. And we, we closed a closed a fund in early November that is focused on that market, dedicated to that market. Uh, in particular, I think where we've carved out a niche in the secondary market is what we call the complex transactions. So um, these are doing things that... Um, again, we that uh, are a little bit off the beaten path of the typical commodity-like uh, LP um, uh, purchase. So these could be an, an end-of-fund-life solution where a private equity fund has reached near the end of its life. The, the, the general partner still feels as though they've got assets that they'd like to manage and continue to grow for the next uh, three to five years. But at the same point, their investors are tired and maybe want to. some of them want to get out. So we can provide a, a special vehicle to, uh, to bridge that solution. Greg Stento, Managing Director at HarborVest, uh, speaking to us about the outlook for private equity and venture capital. This is Bloomberg. just loving their trucks. General Motors, Ford, and other major automakers beat analysts' estimates for U.S. sales. Why? Because Americans just can't get enough pickups and SUVs. Uh, I want to bring in Kevin Tynan, senior auto analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, to talk a little bit about uh, just how good these sales numbers really were and whether they can last. So, Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Lisa. Um, yeah, so very good numbers in the sense that um, 
you know, consumer buying frenzy end of the year, Black Friday through the end of the year clearance sales, um, incentives obviously higher and, and very aggressive. Um, but I think the concern there is if incentives don't work, which obviously they are, um, and then what happens come January, February, uh, you have a little bit of a hangover. Um, you know, the automakers are not as aggressive on, on the uh, incentive and lease deals because there's no real demand left. Um, so very good here and now today. The question is what happens into 2017, if you care about what happens in 2017 at this point. For now, you'll take this. There's there's talk of an 18.3 seasonally adjusted rate, which would be the best since um, employee pricing programs of 2005. Uh, so all, all things are uh, humming along here. Hey, Kevin, what about all things humming along in the auto loan business? Yeah, um, I think there would be... Uh, delinquencies good, are rising. Yeah, de- delinquencies are rising. In right, the subprime, subprime space, right? I mean, yeah. in, in third quarter, two percent of subprime auto loan balances became at least ninety days delinquent. That's up from one point six percent in the third quarter of twenty fourteen. And this is this a significant concern? Yeah, these are these are concerns. The length of the the average term uh, getting longer, and the amount uh, financed, you know, the loan to asset ratio, all those things are, are trending probably uh, where where they would cause concern. Um, the other issue is that as long as uh, money is cheap and easy, what you get is a, is that negative equity of those longer loans flowing into new loans, and people get more and more upside down, and that's really what crashed in you know, that 2009-2010 period. So what happens is you get consumers or drivers basically having to hold on to those vehicles till the term, until there's at least close to some equity because they can't roll that that negative equity anymore. And aren't they uh, longer term loans? Yeah, that's exactly. yeah absolutely. Yeah, like yeah. the 60, like 60 months. Right, if not more. So the average is probably a little bit higher, but if you get people taking 72 month loans, you don't have equity in that vehicle, um, which is okay if, they're, if, if the finance company is going to let you roll that negative equity into the next loan. Once they stop that, then that's where the real trouble starts. You know, I do have to think that one thing that a number of analysts have told us is that um, the auto companies have captive finance companies, so they can afford to take a little bit of a bigger risk, keep extending uh, loans to even subprime borrowers because they're earning so much from selling the cars. How much does it put the captive financing companies of these auto companies at risk of making too many uh, loans that are too speculative. Well, th- that's certainly a, a big risk, Lisa. Too. The other thing you have to remember is um, the leasing part of it, where the automakers, rather than if you think about a cash or a finance deal with with cash incentive across the table, you're getting these sort of subsidized residual values that are being propped up. You know, and now those vehicles come back, which we've been leasing at record rates, starting to come down a little bit. Um, but as those off-lease vehicles come back in the market, there's going to be downward pressure on new price, uh, new vehicle prices, because you're going to have this flood of low-mileage off-lease vehicles coming back to the market. Uh, it's not an industry that really looks too far into the future to worry about these things, but it's out there and it's coming. All right, I'm just going to give you 10 seconds. The Environmental Protection Agency leaving in place those CO2 standards. Is that going to hurt the industry? You know what's going to happen, Pim, in 10 seconds is that they will produce the fuel-efficient vehicles. Those will go into fleets, things like Lyft, Uber. They'll be real ag- aggressive lease deals for those companies. They'll hit their marks, and then they'll go ahead and turn around and sell what they want. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.